lastly, uh, there was one thing that I really wanted to get into the last couple of weeks, preaching through 1 Corinthians 14, uh, and it's kind of a lingering question that the text themselves aren't concerned to answer, um, specifically concerning tongues and other gifts. And to answer it in my preaching, this question in my preaching would be to essentially preach a sermon within a sermon. And this last week, I already chose to do that on a separate issue, so this got put on the cutting room floor. And so the question is, are tongues uh, and other more sensational, miraculous gifts still for today? Uh, And what specifically might the Bible say? What does the confession have to say about that? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I just want to answer it very briefly. There's usually about three camps that most evangelical Christians, modern evangelical Christians, fall into. One we might call a a continuationist group. Those are going to be those that think all of the gifts are still fully operational, should be eagerly sought, uh, and there's going to be lots of diversity within that group as to how they're exercised, what they mean, what they're for, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, On the other side, there's going to be a group that we might call a cessationist group, and that is that certain gifts have ceased following the apostolic foundation of the church in the first century, Um, that while there may have been certain evidences and the decades to follow, that for the most part, the giving of certain gifts like prophecy and and miracles, uh, things like that were done for the establishing the credibility of the gospel message to build the foundation for the church in the apostolic era and have since ceased. There's no use for them anymore. So those are the two extremes. And then you have in the middle what we might call an open but cautious type stance. And those would say, well, I'm not necessarily convinced by the Bible that, that, uh, that these particular gifts have ceased, um, but they probably only operate in unique or special contexts. Um, And when they do operate, it's usually God doing something kind of weird. It's not a normal way to go about it. And so um, I just want to say that I don't think that that's that's the way that the Reformed tradition would have fit into any, or the Reformed tradition wouldn't have fit into any one of those. Um, And so open but cautious would be more like a continuationist, but just wants it restrained. The cessationist, on the other hand, often gets accused of having a low view of the Holy Spirit, Uh, I don't think that's necessarily true either, Uh, but what is it that those prior to Pentecostalism in the late 19th century and uh, and modern evangelicals have thought about this? And this is a really important key because um, we tend to think about this issue in light of its various practices and abuses following the first, second, and especially now the third wave of Pentecostalism. And so here currently we have the Apostolic Reformation and many other things, Bethel and, and, uh, and others, that give rise to this conversation. And theology always, as you can imagine, to one degree is, is a reaction against what it perceives to be error. And so it's setting forth doctrinal propositions and in, with an attempt to correct error. And we have a hard time thinking about this issue outside of that lens. And this is one of those reasons why having access to theological minds, faithful Christians outside of our own context and century is especially helpful to us because they're asking different questions. They have different concerns. They see things that are typically blind spots for us, and that's really helpful. 
And so how is it then that the Reformed tradition, and specifically a confessional tradition like this, would answer the question, do they still continue? Let me just show you real briefly. Chapter 1, Article 1, or Article 1, Paragraph 1, the Scriptures are necessary because in them, having been inscripturated, God has revealed all uh, of His will concerning uh, or his will into salvation for us. It says there in the middle, therefore the Lord was pleased at different times in various ways to reveal himself and declare his will to the church. He did it most uh, fully in Christ. We see that in, Revel- in Hebrews chapter 1. Um, but in order to preserve and propagate the truth, establish the church, the Lord inscripturated. He put this revelation completely in writing. Now here's a key. Therefore, the Holy Scriptures are absolutely necessary because God's former ways of revealing His will to His people have now ceased. So there's one sense in which, because Christ has ultimately and fully revealed His will into salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's nothing to be added to Christ and His mediatorial work, there is no new revelation to be added in this regard. That's why we understand Joseph Smith and various others to be heretics. There's no new revelation to be given. Now, in this sense, we're saying that, there's, that the confession is cessationist. Cessationist, and it means that new revelation concerning God's will for salvation has ceased. However, even though the confession admits gladly that the scriptures, as they're preached and read and sung and otherwise... Uh, are the ordinary means whereby God communicates His will and His salvation to people. We saw in, notice this, in article, hmm, just a second. Come on now. In article 10 on effectual calling, This is what we read. Oh, nope, that's not it. Hold on just a second. Divine Providence. Chapter 5, paragraph 3. In his ordinary providence, the way that he typically goes about governing all things, God makes use of means, though he is free to work apart from them, beyond them, and contrary to them at his pleasure. What does that mean? It means that can we confessionally, and I think scripturally, come to the conclusion that that all of the gifts that we see in the New Testament have totally and ultimately come to an end? I don't think so. But not because the scriptures are commending them to us in the same way that we see, for instance, in the Corinthian church. Uh, rather, I think with the confession and what's most likely in the scriptures, as we read it together, what we see is that God is able to make use of those things that are not the ordinary means whereby he communicates his will. What's the ordinary means? It's the scriptures. His ways of revealing himself, and he's not revealing anything else, have been inscripturated. That's why in Article 1, we want to commit ourselves to translating the Scriptures in as many languages as we possibly can so that everybody has the Scriptures in their own language. But can it be, for instance, that God might, outside of His ordinary means, 
cause an individual by the power of his Holy Spirit to speak, for instance, an actual human language with gospel content that he himself perhaps may not know and provide in that moment an interpreter in such a way that 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 unintelligible tongue is made intelligible such that it prophesies that gospel content for the salvation of sinners and the building of the church, the confession says it's totally within God's means to do that. Now, that's not an open but cautious view. That's a, there is no new revelation. All of God's revelation has been totally and sufficiently inscripturated in the Bible. We're not looking for anything else. Uh, but the content that he's revealed and inscripturated in the Bible may very well be communicated through extraordinary means for the salvation of sinners and for the revelation of his will. Does that make sense? It's not new revelation. It's the same revelation, but done in supernatural or extraordinary ways. So what would we ultimately maintain as a church? The ordinary way God reveals his will and salvation to his church is in the scriptures that governs everything. Is God free to go above, beyond, and around his ordinary means to accomplish his purposes? He can, but never in a way that's contrary to his revealed will. He will always be consistent with it. Does that make sense? So that's where the confession falls. It's cessationist in terms of revelation, but it's open, by virtue of our doctrine of providence, to God operating in ways that are outside of his ordinary ways of operating. Does that make sense? Any questions on that before we dive into eschatology? We have all the juicy stuff tonight. Okay. Well, we won't put any of that on the recording. That was just a freebie for those who are here. Hope it was helpful. Let me pray and we'll get started. Father, I pray for these next few moments as we consider our blessed hope of life after death, of future resurrection, and eternal life bodily, beholding your glory in the face of Christ, that we would be encouraged, that we would be consoled, that we would be spurred on to greater holiness and faithfulness. Father, I pray that you would persuade us from the scriptures that this world is not our home, but that we are, as it were, sojourners in Babylon waiting for Canaan. And so help us with that vision to be more faithful where you've planted us for the sake of your gospel. And we look forward to the returning of your Son, just as each Lord's Day we cry together, Come, Lord Jesus. Indeed, that is our prayer. We ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right. Well, you can open up your copy of the Confession to chapter 31. Chapter 31 of the state of man after death and of the resurrection of the dead. As I said, this really shouldn't be controversial in any way uh, to most Protestants or evangelicals. In fact, it should be very familiar and very comforting. Here in this chapter, we only have three paragraphs, and it's going to be concerning only two things. First of all, the intermediate state. What happens on this side of the resurrection after we die. And so there's a variety of different, uh, of different ideas floating around out there. Perhaps one of the more common ones is the idea of soul sleep, right? In the same way that perhaps your computer goes to sleep and is no longer conscious of anything around it. 
and then wakes up when you wake it up? Is that what happens to us? That our souls go to sleep and we are, as it were, kind of unconscious until the resurrection? Or is there more to it than that? Uh, the, the confession is going to argue against that idea. That when we die, our souls return immediately to God. So it's going to deal immediately with the intermediate state. And in that, we're going to consider that, that there's a way in which our body and our souls should be distinguished. But not only that, there's ways in which both the righteous and the wicked are going to be distinguished. Okay, so even after death, prior to the resurrection, the last day, if the righteous and the wicked are distinguished, it's not only going to push back against the error of soul sleep, it's also going to push back on the error of a post-mortem evangelism. That is one last chance at the judgment seat to respond to the gospel. No, when we die, or when Christ returns, should we be living? Then our chance to respond to the gospel in a positive way ends at that moment, and judgment begins. And that's what's going to ultimately be the, the subject of chapter 32. So we're going to consider the intermediate state, and then we're going to consider the last day in the last two chapters. Follow along with me. The intermediate state. Let's just read that first paragraph because it's a, got a lot in it. The bodies of those who have died return to dust and undergo destruction. But their souls neither die nor sleep because they have an immortal character and immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous are then made perfect in holiness and are received into paradise. There they are with Christ and behold the face of God in light and glory while they wait for the full redemption of their bodies. The souls of the wicked are thrown into hell where they remain in torment and utter darkness reserved for judgment of the great day. The scripture recognizes no place other than these two for souls separated from their bodies. Notice a couple of things. We see that bodies and souls, first of all, are distinguished. That our bodies in this life, because of sin, are corruptible. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15. When we die, we are sown corruptibly. We're going to consider that after Thanksgiving for five weeks. We're going to spend five weeks in 1 Corinthians 15 over the Christmas season. Should be a really, really sweet time. But those corrupt bodies, just as God said they would, return to the very dust from which they come. And that's what we see the confession affirming, that when we die, our bodies, corrupted by sin, return to the dust from which we come. They see corruption. However, our souls are not the same as our bodies. We are, as it were, bipartite creatures of body and soul, one being material and corruptible, returning to dust, and the other being eternal. Now, the foundation for that is all the way back in chapter 4, the foundation for this truth. And we've already studied this from the Scriptures, so I'm just going to summarize it here, that after God had made all the other creatures, He created humanity. He made them male and female with rational and immortal souls. And then he gave them bodies. Why? So that they would be suited to that life lived unto God for which they were created. So we've already seen earlier in the confession that though our bodies are corrupted by sin, will return to the very dust that they came from in death, our souls are immortal. 
Look at Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. Ecclesiastes 12. Go to the middle of your Bible in the Psalms. Go to Proverbs. And then you'll find it, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Verse 7. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, but the Spirit returns to God. Here the author, uh, the preacher, is referring to that material creation. The dust, that's our body, returns to dust, but the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. In other words, he's saying our bodies, their corruptible and decaying nature... Right? The body that I see as a 45-year-old in my mirror that's much different than my body when I was a 25-year-old tells me that everything in this life is ultimately vanity. It's all going back to dust. And so is my body. But my souls, just as the confession says here, immediately return to God. And I love how the confession is just weaving together scriptural language. And that's what we see here. So it distinguishes the body and the soul, first of all, but notice also that it distinguishes the righteous and the wicked. Concerning those righteous souls, it says, the souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into paradise where they are with Christ and behold the face of God in light and glory waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. Notice three things, made perfect in holiness. What does it mean by that? Now, not made perfect in that it's attained a full resurrection life, but it is perfect in holiness. It's the only way that our souls could return to a holy God. If it's so sanctified that there is no ounce of corruption in it, and it is therefore able to quorum Deo, behold the very face of God. It is made perfect in holiness. And by that means then we are received into paradise. Can you think of anywhere in the Bible where a sinner is told that they will be in paradise? Any thoughts? The thief on the cross. And it's just using the same language here. Today, you will be in paradise. And that's really good news for us because all of us, in a sense, are that thief on the cross getting the, what is justly due to us because of our sin. And yet because of Christ and His own substitutionary death for us, though, though our bodies, just like that man's body, will die and return to the dust and decay, at the moment of His death, His soul, having believed upon Jesus, would return to God and behold His glory. How amazing is that? And so it is for all of us. And so we're received in a paradise. But I want you to notice that simply being received in a paradise after we die is not the ultimate hope of the Christian. My stepfather died in March. And we would say of him often that right now, from the moment that he died, he is beholding uh, or his soul is beholding the one whom he loves. And I believe that. With all of my heart, I think that's biblical. But his hope is not yet fully realized. None of ours are when we die. It's realized in part, but will not be fully realized until we are 
raised bodily. Remember what it said all the way back in chapter 4. I'll just read it again. That when we were first created, we were given bodies that were suited to the life lived unto God for which we were created. And you realize that's the same reason that we are going to get new glorified incorruptible bodies. That we would be able to reign with Christ in a new creation bodily only without corruption from sin. It is bodily eternal life equipped with the very bodies that are going to be able us to do not what God originally created us for, but what He has recreated us for in the gospel. That's the hope of resurrection. And when we die and our souls return to God and behold His glory, it's still yet waiting for that greater hope of resurrection when our souls are united again to glorified bodies to rule and to reign with Christ forever. Baptist Catechism question 40 asks, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at their death? Answer, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness, do immediately pass into glory, and their bodies still being united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. But what about those wicked souls? What about those who do not know God and reject the gospel? The confession says in the Souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain, excuse me, in torment and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. You see a number of passages like Luke 16 and Jude 6 and 7, 1 Peter 3, 19, all of which talk about darkness and torment. It's just lifting the language from the scriptures to, des to describe the destiny of the wicked. And notice their souls are cast into hell, but when resurrection day, when the last day comes and all are resurrected, it will not just be the righteous who are resurrected in the judgment. Not just the just, but the unjust as well. And from there they will be consigned eternally and bodily, either for eternal life in a new creation or bodily torment in hell forever. So notice a few things. First of all, it doesn't leave any options for a post-mortem evangelism, and that's right because we don't see that in the Bible. It also doesn't leave any options for a soul sleep. When we die, our souls will be conscious of the one who has created and redeemed us, even as we wait for the fullness of our hope and resurrection. And so we, he doesn't put us to sleep like we might put our computers to sleep until he's ready to go to work on us again. We are fully conscious on a soul level of the glory of God in Christ. And notice also that there are no exceptions. There's no middle ground. There's no purgatory. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they will remain in torment and utter darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day. Or that's not what it says. Look, I, I copied the, the wrong one. <laughs> Go back to your confessions. Copy the wrong one into my notes. The very last line of the first paragraph, the Scripture recognizes no place other than these two for souls separated from their bodies. There's no third ground. So it opposes the idea of soul sleep and post-mortem evangelism, but it's also an implicit polemic against purgatory, that there's a third way, that if you reject Christ, you do so unto judgment eternally. If you Believe upon Christ by faith and what's revealed in the gospel. 
then you will receive eternal life, beginning at the point of death and fully consummated at the resurrection. And there is no third way. Well, now it gets into the last day in paragraphs 2 and 3. Look at that second paragraph. These are a lot shorter. At the last day, those saints who are found alive will not sleep, but will be changed. All the dead will be raised up with the very same bodies, not different ones, though they will have different qualities. Their bodies will be united again to their souls forever. Notice, first of all, this is concerning saints, what happens to believers, and it's concerning both those who are living when Christ returns and those who have already died prior to the return of Christ. Notice the living. On the last day, they won't die, they won't sleep, but in that moment, they will be changed. We see that in 1 Thessalonians 4. But the dead, well, they shall be raised up, notice this, with the self-same bodies. Men are not going to be raised as women. Women aren't going to be raised as bears or cheetahs or men. Uh, we are going to be raised in the same bodies in which we died, only those bodies will be glorified without corruption. And who is the ultimate pattern of the first fruits by which we can be confident of that? Is it not the Lord Jesus Christ? That when He was raised, was He still not in the body by which he, in which He was crucified and bore the very wounds by which He was hung on a cross? He did. And yet at the same time, he was not recognized, not only because of unbelief, but because he comes back in an altogether different quality. And that's what it says here. All the dead will be raised with self-same bodies and none other, although with different qualities. What are the different qualities? Are we going to get the noses that we want and the ears that we want and the shoulders, broad shoulders that we want or whatever it may be? That's not what it means. The qualities that it's talking about are spiritual to be in bodies that are incorruptible, that know nothing of a touch or a taste of sin and are totally unstained, are able to do all that God would have it do to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever without a single ounce of impedance from our own sin or a sinful world. It's going to be an altogether different kind of bodily existence, even though it is our own bodies. And it's in those bodies, united to our souls, with which we will live forever with Him. Well, in the third paragraph, we see that all men are raised. So the second paragraph narrows the focus to Christians, and now the third paragraph broadens its scope all the way out to all men. It says, the bodies of the unjust will be raised by the power of Christ to dishonor, by, the, by His Spirit, the bodies of the just will be raised to honor and will be made like Christ's own glorious body. We see a couple of things. We see the destiny of the unjust and the just. Let's just look at a couple of passages. Acts 24, 15 is a good place to start. Go into the book of Acts, chapter 24. Beginning in verse 14, but I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection 
of both the just and the unjust. John chapter 5. John 5 verse 28. Let's go all the way up to 25. Truly I say to you that an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. And so when we come to that last day and the just and the unjust are separated from one another, how do we know that that separation will be just? Because all authority to make those distinctions have been given by the Father to the Son who will do so perfectly. He has granted the Son to have life in Himself and has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so we see that all men will be raised, both the just and the unjust, the unjust to dishonor, but the bodies of the just with honor, made conformable to His own glorious body, incorruptible, recreated for a new heavens and a new earth. Notice one other thing in this last line, the bodies of the unjust are raised then by the power of Christ whereas the bodies of the just are raised by His Spirit. Why the distinction? Those who, are, who have rejected, who do not know God and have rejected the gospel will be raised, and they'll be raised by virtue of Christ's command when He returns. And His command will be given at that day not as a redeemer, but as a judge. And, he'll be, and at that moment, He will judge them. But we who have hoped in Christ have already been united to the risen Christ by the Spirit, such that to be raised with Him spiritually is the seal for that day of redemption when we are raised with Him bodily, and the Spirit not only raises us back to life, but gives us the same glory of our Savior bodily. It is a spiritual resurrection unto glory by virtue of our union with Christ. And so a distinction is made because we know Christ through the Spirit as our Redeemer. We will not know Christ apart from the Spirit as our judge. Does that make sense? Question 41 in the Baptist Catechism, what then are the benefits to our believers to receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall openly acknowledge be acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Isn't that interesting? Just look on your sheet at the beginning of, of your worksheet to, to the end. What are the benefits that believers receive from Christ at their death? Be made perfect in holiness, immediately pass into glory, their bodies still being united to Christ, rest in their graves till the resurrection. Well, then what do we receive at the resurrection? To be 
raised in glory, openly acknowledged, acquitted in the day of judgment, and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all of eternity. The key is not that we finally enjoy God in all of eternity. It is the full enjoyment of God. Not just soul, but body for eternity. United as God has created us to be, perfectly fit for life as His vice-regents in a new creation. Isn't that amazing? This is standard Protestant, not just Reformed, but Protestant eschatology. We are going to die, and when we do, we are going to see God even as we wait for our new bodies. And when we get our new glorified bodies fashioned after Christ, we will reign with Him forever. That's how the Bible ends, you know. And they will reign with Him forever. Amazing. Well, let's move on to 32, and then we'll open up some time for some Q&A, because now we're concerning ourselves with the Last Judgment. Three more paragraphs, all concerning the Final Judgment. We're going to see the appointment of the day in paragraph one. We're going to see God's purpose for the day in paragraph two. And then we're going to see our anticipation of the day in the final paragraph. And that's really the big, so what? Why is it important for our life now and how we think about our life? Consider that first paragraph. God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given by the Father. We just saw that in John 5. And in that day, the apostate angels will be judged. What's he talking about there? So also all people who have lived on the earth will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive a reckoning according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. We already saw in John chapter 5 that all authority has been given to Christ, but turn to the book of Acts again, chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and we're just considering that God has appointed a day, a day of judgment, the day of the Lord, as Isaiah so prominently called it. Acts chapter 17, Let's start at verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. And here's the money verse, verse 31. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, that is the man Jesus Christ. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. How do we know that day is coming? Because Christ has been raised. So you better get ready because a day has been appointed. And who are its subjects? Well, we see there's two subjects in the confession. Not just the just and the unjust, not merely the just and the unjust, humans. But notice also those apostate angels we see that in Jude chapter 6, 
and elsewhere, that those angels who, who fell in rebellion to Him, that all will be judged at that final judgment. 1 Corinthians 6.3, likewise, let's just look at a number of these passages, might be worth it. 1 Corinthians 6.3, let's start there. When one of you has a grievance against the other, why are you going to the courts, he says? Why can't you just make these trivial judgments amongst one another? Because, verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? There's coming a day where angels are going to be judged. Jude chapter 6. What else do we see? Jude is at the end of the New Testament, right before the book of Revelation. Now, I want to remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And what will that judgment day look like? Verse 7, it's going to look just like Sodom and Gomorrah. It is going to be utter destruction of the world that we know unto the remaking of a brand new world. See also Noah. And in that day, it will not just be all men standing in judgment before Christ, but also, verse 6, those apostate angels, quote, who did not stay within their own position of authority, rather rebelled against God. And so, takes those parts of the Bible, the confession does, Parts that we normally skim over, we go, well, I'd be interested to study, and then kind of move on without thinking twice about it, and codifies it into the greatness of God's judgment, the greatness of His justice, the glory of His justice. And what are those events that are going to happen then? Well, the confession says that those who stand before Him, quote, are going to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and they're going to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. These are all worth looking at. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14. Notice the words of the wise are like goads, are like nails firmly fixed, are the collected sayings, and they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end, and much study, there is weariness of flesh. In other words, not all words are helpful. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The things that only you and God know about will one day be laid bare. And in that day, only Christ is your hope if you've hoped in Him. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. 
And now here specifically, the words that he's speaking about are those words that either deny or affirm the gospel as revealed in Christ. Those are the vipers that he's speaking about. Every careless word concerning Christ and the gospel that you speak, you will be standing, given account for. Not only that, look at chapter 25. I'm not going to look at this entire, though, it might, though I might. That no one knows the day and the hour. Concerning that day and hour, verse 36, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the Son, but the Father only. For as the days of Noah, so will be coming the Son of Man. In other words, it'll be really fast. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be, coming, so will be the coming of the Son of Man." Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one is left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Keep that in mind. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready when the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Who then is faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them food at proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find do so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour that he doesn't know and cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is the point at the end of that parable other than what we do in this life in response to God and the gospel will be repaid at the judgment, either under glory or under condemnation. We will give an account of our thoughts, words, and deeds and receive according to what we have done in this body, whether good or evil. Well, what then is God's purpose for that day? There's a threefold purpose. Number one, it's to display God's glory, both in salvation and in damnation. Secondly, it's to bestow God's blessings, specifically upon the elect of eternal life and joy and glory and reward. And thirdly, it is to execute God's justice, and here we see the wicked characterized and the wicked condemned. Follow along with me here in paragraph 2. God's purpose for appointing this day is to manifest the glory of His mercy and the eternal salvation of the elect and of His justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. Now you should see in that opening statement that the emphasis here is not ultimately on the elect or the reprobate, it is on the very character of God. We saw all of these back in chapter 2 on the doctrine of God. Second half of the opening paragraph, He works all things according to the counsel of His own unchangeable and 
completely righteous will for His own glory, He is most loving, most gracious, most merciful, and most patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek Him diligently. At the same time, He is perfectly just, and He's terrifying in His judgments. He hates all sin and will not clear the guilty. All of that language, that category of the goodness and the glory of God, what the confession is saying in the final chapter is that God is good to judge sin. And that day of judgment will serve the purpose of magnifying the glory of His grace unto His elect and the glory of His judgment unto those who do not know God and have rejected His gospel. And so it's first of all to display God's glory. Is that not what we see in Romans chapter 9 when we read that God has raised up vessels of destruction for His own glory to magnify the glory of His mercy? is what Paul says. And then after he considers God's judgment against Israel and even His mercy in saving some by faith in Christ, what does he say at the very end of that section in Romans chapter 11? His doxology. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments. In other words, it's not that we will not know His judgments, it's that we cannot know God's judgments as God knows them. He knows them with perfect knowledge and executes them in perfect justice, which is why it says in the universe 33 that His ways are inscrutable. No one will be able to raise up against God and say, unfair, unjust, not right. No one can scrutinize His justice. For who has known the mind of the Lord? It's way above us. Who's been His counselor? No one. Who has given a gift that He might be repaid? God needs nothing. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. And so it is, first of all, to display God's glory. But secondly, it's to bestow God's blessings. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and glory with everlasting rewards in the presence of the Lord. Now notice that last clause, in the presence of the Lord. What it's referring to is that beatific vision. Beholding the glory of God with our own eyes in the face of Christ. And in the context of this beatific vision which is the ultimate reward of eternal life, is the beholding and the enjoying of God and His glory. These are the things that we find and enjoy in that context. Eternal life and eternal reward, full joy and full glory. No one is going to enter the new heavens and the new earth with glorified bodies, beholding with their glorified eyes the glory of God in the face of Christ, with the name of Christ stamped on their foreheads, look around and go, is this it? I thought there would be a little bit more. It's full glory, as in nothing lacking. Full joy, as in impossible to increase forever. That's what we look forward to. 
And so it's to display God's glory. It's to bestow God's blessing. But thirdly, the confession says it is to execute God's justice. We see, first of all, the wicked are characterized. Specifically here, they do not know God and they do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's those who, according to Romans 1, know God from what He has created and have suppressed that knowledge and from the suppression of that knowledge are living out in utter wickedness, not only against God and His law written in their hearts, but even in many instances against His very creation. Men giving over their bodies to unnatural acts, sinning not only against God's Word, but God's creation. And so in all of these ways, in the suppression of the knowledge of God, in the language there, when it says He suppressed the knowledge of God in Romans 1, it's, it's like this idea of a jack-in-the-box. You know what I'm talking about? When you turn that handle, jack pops out of the box. Creation is kind of like that. It sings an irrepressible sermon about the existence and the glory of God. For the heavens declare the glory of God. Paul is just borrowing Psalm 19, applying it in Romans 1, and then telling us why it is that so many people refuse to believe in that God, despite the fact that everything that he has created has preached a silent sermon from one end of the earth to the other, everything the Son touches about who he is. And the answer is, is because they're by nature children of wrath. And by virtue of their corrupted nature, from sin and death spreading to all men because of Adam, they freely choose to suppress the knowledge of God. And when confronted by the gospel, they refuse God's free offer of grace in Christ and choose instead to rely on themselves for the day of judgment. And for all who do not know Him, that is, suppress His knowledge, and do not obey the gospel, they will stand judgment, and God's justice will be glorified against them in that day. Look at first, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians 1. Verse 7. Well, let's just go to verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar? They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now, when it says here that the presence of the Lord, they're away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, it's referring to that beatific vision. They will not be able to enjoy in that day what the elect will enjoy. They will not behold with glorified eyes the beauty of Christ and the glory of God in His face and delight in Him and enjoy Him in fullness 
Rather, they will be terrified in that day. God is omnipresent. There is no place in all of creation where He is not, including hell. Hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the full presence of God amidst His creation, His sinful, corrupted creation, without the grace of a mediator. Think of every time anyone is confronted, even just in a vision by the glory of God, Isaiah, Jacob, even the Apostle John seeing the glorified Christ in Revelation chapter 1, what do they do? Each one of them time and again fall down as if dead. And that's just a glimpse of a glimpse of the glory of God. Hell is the unmediated glory of God to those who do not have Christ's righteousness. And they will endure it eternally forever. So hell is not a godless eternity. It is eternity with God without the covering of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is terrifying. So we see the wicked characterized and we saw the wicked condemned, cast aside into everlasting torments, punished with everlasting destruction for the presence of our Lord and from the glory of of his power. That's just 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, and 10. And so with that knowledge of what's coming, how should that impact how we live now? That's what the last paragraph is concerned with. It's going to let us know, first of all, that day is coming. As Christ, it says, would have us be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. In other words, two purposes are given for the promise of this coming day, promised not only in the resurrection of Christ, but in God's Word revealed and inscripturated to us, it's to function, first of all, as a deterrent, that we would be deterred from sin, that we would not give ourselves to it, and also as a consolation. We saw that in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5, and 7 that God will judge those who afflict His saints, and that will be to our comfort. There's coming a day where His saints are going to be vindicated, and though we might suffer for the gospel's sake, perhaps in this life it will not last forever. That suffering has an expiration date, and so that day for one who is in Christ is not bad news, it is good news. Because on that day, our champion arrives and he will, with a whisper of a whisper in his voice, as with a sword from his mouth, will tread the winepress of the fury of God over all those who reject his gospel and oppress his people. And none of his saints in that day will look and go, oh Lord, don't do that. All of his saints who have hoped for that day will go, Finally, the day has arrived, and the glory of God's justice has been revealed. And so it is a deterrent. Don't love sin. You're going to give an account for it, and it's a consolation. You're going to be vindicated for trusting in Christ one day. He's, go he's going to handle everything. Finally, not only is that day coming, but we don't know that day. The Bible doesn't give it to us. 
so will he have the day unknown to men. Why? First of all, that they may shake off all carnal security. And secondly, that they may be always watchful. Which means that we live every day as if today could be the day. My wife just went out of town with our daughters, and I was home with my son and my seven-year-old. She was gone for five days, and she went out of town, out of state, for a volleyball tournament. And we knew the time that she was going to get back, about 6.30 at night, and so that meant at about, on that day, 5 o'clock, we start scrambling, because we want Kathy to find us in good order when she returns. Not with dishes that hadn't been done in five days, I'm not telling. Laundry that hadn't been folded. We knew that if we didn't do those things, we needed to live every minute of that day as if mama was coming home. How much more should every day be lived as if the Lord Jesus Christ, so to speak, could walk in the door any minute. That's the expectation that the Bible gives us. We don't know when it's going to be. It could be any time. Are you ready? Don't put your security in this world. It's all dust. Always be watching. That's what the promise of the day does. Revelation twenty two twenty, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's why we end every one of our corporate gatherings the way the Bible ends, because that's our hope. Come, Lord Jesus.